Um, not, not sure if you guys heard this past week, um, a well-known Oregon-based traveling evangelist named Luis Palau passed away this past week. Yes, um, lived into his 80s, lived a successful life that we can celebrate. 50 years of faithfully following Jesus, Luis spread the gospel around 80 countries in this world. Over one million decisions were made to follow Jesus over the course of that. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, I knew the Palau family. I know the Palau family really well. Um, Luis is great. He's a jokester, uh, did festivals with his son, Andrew, coached his grandkids in soccer. And, um, you know, I'll never forget my interactions with Luis. Again, super funny guy, Spanish-speaking, a lot like our Luis, you know, just a jokester, Spanish-speaking. And... um, I wanted to give you a quote from Luis Palau just to kind of sum up his humor. I love this. The church is like manure. Pile it up and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out and it enriches the world. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, we will miss Luis Palau. Um, I think it's safe to say that Luis was a true disciple of Jesus, committed to following him his entire life. And today we're going to talk about just that. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to ask the question and answer, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? And if you remember when we did our church series a few months back, Rousseau taught on this very same thing. We're going to cover a lot of those same things and bring them back up today this morning. But we're really going to dive into what a disciple was like in the first century. And I think you're going to discover a lot of things that will be new for you. So, what is a disciple? Now, the main theme of Matthew, if you've been tracking with us, is the kingdom of God breaking into our world through Jesus Christ. Right? We all get that. Now, if you've read chapters 8 through 10, what we've been studying the last few weeks You've noticed a few things. You might be wondering, what is this section all about? Because Jesus is going around doing a bunch of miraculous healings. Brett taught that last week. And then there's these sections of him going and like refining his disciples. And if you read it on your own, you might be like, well, what's going on here, Matthew? Like, what's, what's this supposed to be about? Is it discipleship or is it healing? And the answer is, yes, both, right? The answer is Both. These two things go hand in hand. They are not mutually exclusive. God does not give us the option to learn about him without experiencing firsthand his power, the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, some of us have tried one without the other. You want to know more about the scripture, so you add Bible studies or books. But God wants you to face your demons. Or perhaps you want healing, that migraine that just won't go away. But God wants to show you his character and to give you wisdom in your relationships and enter you into the story of God. You see, discipleship is always and must be both knowledge and power. Knowledge and power. That is the first thing about discipleship. Now, we use that word disciple all the time. And all the time around here at Redeemers, we say we're making disciples. We are followers of Jesus. And... It's even in our mission statement. But the fear that I have as a leader, and Brett too, is that if we use these words too much, they might become redundant or cliche, and we miss out on the meaning of them. Therefore, it's time to learn exactly what it means to be a disciple. Are you guys ready to nerd out? 
Okay. Because this is, this is going to be like lecture style uh, for the next like 30 minutes. But then at the end, I promise we're going to come up for air. So buckle in, take notes, make sure your Bible is out open right now, whether it's a physical Bible or a Bible app to Matthew 9. We've got to cover a chapter and a half. And we're going to do it. We can do this. Discipleship is not a class you can graduate from or a book you can read. Neither is it simply identifying as a Christian. But instead, discipleship is choosing to follow Jesus, spend time with him, learn from him, and do the things he did for the rest of your life. So We're not going to waste any time this morning, but we will stop and pray again. If you're watching online, please, whatever you're doing, stop and pray with us. Father, we look to you, and we look to your Son to teach us now through your scriptures. We ask that your Holy Spirit would connect the dots. This would not just be knowledge this morning, but power. Speak to each individual here exactly what they need to hear. Even those that aren't with us in this room right now, Holy Spirit, would you speak to them what they need? Downstairs with the kids, Teach them what they need to hear. Amen. All right, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went out from there, his hometown, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. It's very similar to the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John, right? Just sees him fishing. He's like, like a boss, right? Follow me. And they get up and follow him. No questions asked. Now, what happens next is kind of funny to me because I, I never really saw this the first few times I read it, but Jesus basically asked Matthew to come follow him, and then the very next thing, Jesus like is at Matthew's house eating a meal. It's like he invited himself over for a meal, which is hilarious. It's not who you'd expect to you know, pay for the meal on the first date. But while Jesus was having dinner, this is verse 10, Matthew's house, Uh, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6 here. The emphasis to the Pharisees is their lack of compassion for the lost, the sick, the sinners, the outcasts, the least likely that you would expect to be invited into the kingdom of God. When this should have been central for them in light of the vision of Hosea 6.6. Now more on that next week. Carson's going to lead us through the rest of chapter 9. For our purposes today, I want you to know... A few things. One, Matthew is a very unlikely choice for a disciple. Very unlikely choice. The Pharisees were astonished that Jesus would, one, eat with him, let alone call him to be one of his followers, one of his examples. Okay, now skip to verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This is another hidden critique of the Jewish leaders at the time. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Note, verse 35. 
Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now, this line should sound familiar. Matthew uses it earlier, doesn't he? Chapter 4, verse 23, just before he goes and gives the Sermon on the Mount. It's the exact same line. And this is important. Jesus did not go around saying something like, believe in me that I exist and you'll go to heaven when I die. No, but instead he taught, he proclaimed the kingdom, God's rule, and he healed. Do we have a slide for that? I believe we do. Anyways, Britain will get up there in a second. <laughs> he taught, he proclaimed the kingdom of God's rule, and he healed. Now, why is that important? And why does it have to do with discipleship? I'm glad you asked. Turn to chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and the name that we all love and are ready to name our grandchildren, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, all kind of paired up in twos here. There's a lot going on here. Uh, One, the 12 disciples are Matthew puts us in here to echo the tribes of Israel as if to say Jesus is starting a whole new work, a whole whole new people of God who will be my priest on earth. It's brilliant what Matthew's doing. There's also a subplot happening here. We don't really have time to get into it, and I kind of question if some of us are even ready for it, but there's a scandalous thing happening here. Just within the 12 disciples, you have Simon the Zealot, Paired with Matthew, the tax collector. And if you're in the first century, this would be like a glaring scandal. Uh, The zealots were Jews who were typically violent and who were uh, trying to overthrow Roman rule. And they were very aggressive. Now, the tax collectors are on the polar opposite side. They were Jews who were suspiciously corrupt and working with the Romans to, yes, gather taxes. So these two would be at serious odds with each other. Think like an Oregon State Beaver fan and an an Oregon Duck getting married, right? Or Trump and Biden are like, let's join forces and run together the next election. You know, like, what? I could keep going. Like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates building a computer. Or Ellen DeGeneres and Oprah Winfrey joining networks. We don't have time. So back to our main plot. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or into any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And coming up to verse 8. As you go, proclaim the message. Here it is again. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Now stop. Isn't this what Jesus was doing in the previous chapters? Yes, he's, he's telling his disciples, go do exactly what I've been doing. Now, let me also read to you the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, what we call the Great Commission. Jesus came to them, his disciples, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He's telling the disciples to go make disciples <laughs> to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them 
Jesus taught the disciples. Now the disciples are to go and teach, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Okay, so here's what you need to see. The disciples are sent out to do exactly what Jesus does. And we see this strictly by observation, right? We haven't done any deep work yet. Because there's so much going on in the first century context. So um, we're going to go to like a whole nother level of nerding out here. You guys ready? I, I apologize if like watching the History Channel isn't your thing. Just bear with us, okay? This will be quick though. Discipleship fun facts. Here we go. First thing, to be super clear, Jesus is a lot of things. He's the Son of God. He's also the Messiah, the the Christ, a prophesied coming king to restore Israel. But if you are a first century Jew and Jesus were to come to your synagogue and start teaching in your town, the odds are you would put him in the category of rabbi. And rabbi means teacher. Yeah. Rabbi means teacher. Are are the slides not working, Britain? Is that... He's a master back there and a wizard, so he'll figure it out, I'm sure. Rabbi means teacher. Rabbis were traveling teachers with a yoke. That's a first century euphemism for a way of teaching, a way of understanding the Torah. And that was passed on to a rabbi's disciples. And that was what Jesus was. In the Gospels, Jesus is called rabbi or teacher upwards of 60 times. A little backstory here. Jesus was not the first rabbi. You have Rabbi Hillel. He was a famous, famous rabbi years before Jesus existed or lived. And uh, he had 80 pairs of disciples. And then there was Rabbi Akiva who lived after the death of Jesus. Uh, he had five like super devote disciples, but they say he had 1,200 pairs of men and women who were also his disciples. That is crazy. Now, in Hebrew, the word disciple... Disciple is Talmudim. Can you say that? Talmudim. Yeah. Talmudim means disciple, follower, or student. But don't think like follower, I have like a thousand followers on Instagram. How many do you have? You know, it's not like that. And don't think student like, oh, I go to COCC or I go to Oregon State, you know, and I take notes in class. No, actually, the best definition or translation we have of what a disciple is today would be an apprentice. An apprentice. Now, this idea of discipleship didn't start with Jesus either, uh, but it was an idea actually imported from Greece hundreds of years earlier. For example, you know, Plato, right? He was a disciple of, anybody know? Socrates, yes. Or as Bill and Ted say, Socrates. Yeah. All we are is dust in the wind. In the first century, discipleship was the apex of the Jewish education system. Now, check this out. If you were born a Hebrew, you would go through three levels of education. The first was called Beit Sefer, a Hebrew phase that meant house of the book. And this was essentially grade school, what you did up to the age, up to age 12. Uh, You learned to read and write and do basic math all from the book or the Torah, the scriptures. On top of that, you would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, memorized by age 12. Anybody? Yeah. What has happened to our education system, you know? Where's Joel Hoff right now? I need to ask him that. (laughs) Memorize. Yikes. Okay. 
vast majority of children were done after that. Women would go on, hopefully start a family, have children. The males would then go on and learn the family business. Now, the best of the best, though, would continue in schooling something called Beit Talmud, which means house of learning. Now, there was a school built on the side of the synagogues that had like a paid teacher. And from ages 12 to 15, you would learn full-time from that teacher, and you would memorize the rest of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, memorized by age 15. Okay, right? Now, at that point, almost everybody was done with schooling, right? Almost everybody was done. But the best of the best of the best, right? The scholars, the elite, think like Maverick and Goose at Top Gun, right? Or Jordan Robinson and Barkley and the Dream Team, you know? Or, I don't know, Brett and I in our acute fashion sense, you know, starting a school for how to be good looking and do other things good too. Um, The best of the best would go on to become a Talmudine. And you had to first, if you wanted to become a Talmudine, pass like this crazy interview with a rabbi who you wanted to follow. And they would press you. I mean, you would be interrogated. Well, well, how well have you memorized the Torah and the scriptures? And, and, you know, whose take or whose commentary do you agree with? You know, Rabbi Hillel or Akiva? You know, what's, what's your position on this issue? And if that rabbi decided that he liked you and that you knew your stuff, he would turn to you and say something like, come and follow me, be one of my Talmudim. Now, say you made the cut. Like, hypothetically, everybody in this room, like, we made the cut. The odds are not in your favor. (laughs) You know, it'd have to be something like your family knew a guy, knew a guy that knew the rabbi, and the rabbi owed him money, and that's how you got into Stanford. You know? Something like that. I mean, discipleship. So you had three goals. Yes, the hardship is just beginning. You had three goals. One, to be with your rabbi. Apprenticeship was 24-7. You would follow your rabbi around all day, eat, sleep, do rabbi stuff, repeat. (laughs) It's much like the modern-day apprentice. Think like if you want to be an electrician, you know, you do training, you do school, and then you have to put in uh, 4,000 hours of work with another electrician. And you're only halfway there. You then take an exam, hopefully pass it, and you begin your general license, or to get your general license, requires another 4,000 hours working under a general electrician, your apprentice. Knowledge and power go together. For me, I'm like, no thanks, I'm just going to watch a two-minute YouTube and risk my life doing this electrical work. Here we go. <laughs> right? Now, there's a well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century that went something like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And this wasn't a metaphor. First century dirt roads, you'd be following your rabbi wherever they went and be covered in their dust. Um, I'll tell you a fun story. So I love going for runs on the canyon just a few blocks from here. Last summer, I was enjoying a run with my good friend Carson. Carson and I are actually good friends. And... um, 
And so we're going on a run together. And, well, Carson's from Eugene. I'm from Portland. So we're, like, decked out in, like, the coolest Nike stuff that you could possibly get. Like, super high tech, all the cool colors. I mean, we're looking great. Carson is still wearing some dumb Mets hat, but that's his thing. So here we are on this run. And when Carson and I are hanging out, we're always talking about theology or church stuff or cultural moments stuff or politics. Um, so much so that whenever I get home, my wife's like, how's Carson doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> we just jumped right into the talks, you know. So there we are. We're in deep conversation running. And then in the distance, we see this, like, tornado of dust or something kicking up, you know. I'm like, well, that's strange. And it's right in the middle of the path. Like, we're headed towards this weird, like, dust tornado thing. We keep running. We get closer. And we realize oh, there's, like, a person in this tornado, like a Tasmanian devil or something, you know, just coming right at us. So keep running. We're like, oh, my gosh. Like, what is this person? He was big dude and running really fast like he had to be somewhere. We get a little bit closer, and we see, like, this person is dressed really poorly, like, basketball shorts from high school, you know, like um, a band t-shirt, but everything was covered in paint, like they were painting their house, and they just like Forrest Gump style just got up and started running, you know? It's so, so strange, and, and we keep running, and then as the person gets closer, we realize, it's Brett Anderson. <laughs> oh my gosh. If you don't know, Brett's our lead pastor here. And uh, I'm like, this is great. Brett's here. You know, Carson and I are like, this is exciting. And we kind of like stop on the trail as Brett's coming. Like, oh boy, Alpha Dog is here. Alpha Dog, yay. And Brett sees us. And, and he looks at us and he goes, he puts his arm in and he goes, yeah. Runs right by us. <laughs> Didn't stop for a second. And just like a semi passing you, and then like all the dirt and wind comes up, you know, like just covered in the dirt of the canyon. Our cute little outfits now destroyed in the dust of bread. Our emotions were hurt. I'm still recovering. Um, we were astonished, a little bummed. Later that day, actually, I saw Brett at a staff meeting here in the back of the room, and I was like, hey, hey, Brett, <laughs> saw you in the canyon today. <laughs> Why didn't you stop and talk to us? And Brett doesn't skip a beat. He goes, I've got four kids. I don't got time to talk with you guys. <laughs> oh, Brett, we love you. Hope you're enjoying your vacation and your lonesome runs by yourself. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So first thing, be with your rabbi 24-7. Second thing, learn from your rabbi's teaching style. When Jesus told the disciples he would make them fishers of men, that wasn't like a cheesy Christian cliche joke at the time. Um, it was actually a first century way of saying, come and I will make you an incredible teacher who can capture the minds and imaginations of people. You'll become a fisher of men. It's, it's really quite funny. Um, and that was the heart and soul of apprenticeship, of discipleship. Your goal was to become a carbon copy of your rabbi, to imitate everything about him, his tone of voice, the way he dressed, how he ate, like everything. You would be transformed into the image of your rabbi. Rousseau did a great job teaching us this a few months back. 
Now, the third thing, you would do what your rabbi does. So just as we read earlier, Jesus says something to the effect of, go now, do the things I did, teach, make disciples, proclaim the kingdom, do miracles and healing by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was the goal. The whole point of being a disciple was to be able to go and do the things that Jesus did. And we say this all the time. We exist as Redeemer's Church to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. And we don't have time to fully unpack all of that. Actually, Brett and I are really looking forward to probably doing like an eight-week series on what it means to like learn from Jesus fully and then create new habits around practicing his way. Um, We can't get into it today, but I'm really excited when we get to that point. Some people call it spiritual disciplines, um, but it's just the various ways that you, you soak in from your rabbi, your teacher, Jesus, and then are able to live out those things. For our purpose today, I want us to see and really have two takeaways. One, this invitation to be a disciple is for you. There is an invitation for you to become a disciple not a Christian. You've been invited to become a disciple, not a Christian. Jesus did not come to earth to make Christians or converts. In fact, that word Christian in the scriptures is only used about three times. And it's debated whether or not it's even positive when it's used. It's like a negative use. So Jesus did come, however, to make disciples. Disciples is used 250 times in your Bible. Now let that sink in. You say, what's the difference? Like, Michael, are you just caught up in semantics, disciples, Christians? Well, the best definition or distinction of the two that I've heard recently goes like this. Disciples are those who follow Jesus. Christians are those who make Jesus follow them. Put another way, being a Christian today in the U.S. is more about Jesus following you than you following Jesus. As in, you make decisions that you want to make about your life, school, who to marry, where to live, your job, your car, your house, whatever. And Jesus is supposed to come along and bless whatever you do. In that scenario, Jesus is not Lord. You are. He's just there to help you when you get down about life, right? He's the cosmic vending machine. When you don't get what you want, you go to God or to Jesus. And for many people, sadly, this is as far as they get in their relationship with God. And I need to be clear, that is not discipleship. That is not what Jesus is inviting you to do. Now, second thing, Jesus' invitation is for everyone. Yes, you. Like, you don't have to make it all the way to that third level of Talmudin. If you haven't noticed yet, the disciples were like this ragtag group. They were super green. They were unlikely to be picked as disciples. That's the shocking thing that's happening in the first century. Like, what? Fishermen and and the tax collector and the zealot? They're all disciples? Yes. Unlikely. What you also need to know is that those 12 disciples are also referred to as the apostles. Jesus actually had way more disciples following him around. Men and women from all backgrounds, all ages, and all skill levels. And you see that exploding as the church explodes into the world in the book of Acts. So there's no, there's no test you need to pass. The invitation is for you, yes you, to become a disciple of Jesus. You are invited. The second part of this teaching, we're going to get into the rest of the scripture. It's summarized in one phrase. Don't be afraid. 
Because what we're about to read is the cost of discipleship. So we're not done yet. We've only got 30 more verses to go. Phew, and I've got two minutes. All right. (laughs) Now, as we start back at verse 9, looking down at the Bible again, chapter 10, verse 9, there's an interesting moment here uh, compared to the sending of the 12 in Luke's gospel, chapter 9. Many scholars actually debate Matthew broke away from like a narrative flow and gave a sort of summary and missions discourse or instructions. Remember, Matthew is writing this after the death of Jesus, as in disciples are flowing out into the world and enduring persecution. So as you'll notice, much of what Matthew is talking about kind of reflects the book of Acts or the epistles that we read later in the New Testament. For our purposes purposes this morning, I think it'd be cool if we just read it like that. Like, these are Jesus' words to disciples even now today, 2,000 years later. He says in verse 9, the words of Jesus, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you on your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. As if to say, as a disciple, travel light. Don't be bound by money. Don't fear tomorrow. God will take care of you. And whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. I love that language. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake off the dust from your feet, that influence, whatever it is. Truly, I tell you, I will be more bearable. It'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were like towns back in that day that were actually destroyed at that point, but were like way worse than Las Vegas. And on that day of judgment for that town. Um, now again, Jesus is just kind of getting at be salt and light. Bring peace and shalom wherever you go when you eat meals and share them with your neighbors. And then don't force Jesus on people who don't want him. Verse 16, he says, I am sending you out like sheep. That's a nonviolent creature. I don't know if you have sheep. Not very violent. Well, among wolves, a violent creature, right? We can all agree. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves, meaning you'll need to be wise and you'll need to be innocent. And be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils, be flogged in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. This is all stuff that happens in the book of Acts. But when they arrest you, don't worry. Don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So Jesus is saying, being attached to my name it is going to bring about some hurt. And if not to your physical body, it may affect other aspects of your soul. But don't be afraid. Don't worry. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above the master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, that was like a popular demon of the day, kind of like the way Satan is depicted today, how much more the members of his household? So, verse 26, do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be known. 
What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim on the roofs. Again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God, by the way. That's not Satan. That's God. If you're going to fear anything, have the fear of God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall by the ground outside your father's care. And even if the very hairs of your head are all numbered, here it is again. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You guys getting the hint here. Don't be afraid. Whoever acknowledges me, verse 32, before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, if that wasn't already a problem. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. All that to say, the persecution you are receiving is expected. Like the family tensions that we feel as Jesus followers for, for our faith is normal. But Jesus wants us to press on. Our Father cares about us. He knows we're going to be received as a disciple. Verse 37, and we're almost through it. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's heavy. Gosh, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, that's pretty crazy, the whole take up your cross Right then, in that moment when Jesus was saying this, probably on that very road, there would have been 2,000 zealots who tried to rebel against Rome, crucified every 30 or so feet. Imagine that. Crosses along the road, like telephone poles today, and a person on each one, and Jesus says, take up your cross, follow me. That's crazy. (laughs) And at the same time, he's saying, don't be afraid. Wow. Verse 40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives you a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. The cost of discipleship is heavy. As Brett said last week, it's not safe, but it's worth it. Because the cost of not following Jesus and following your own desires will end much worse. Jesus told us all, he told us all, whether or not you follow him, that you will have troubles in this life. Jesus also said, but my yoke, my way of life is easy and light. Another quote from Luis Palau, when you face the perils of weariness, carelessness, and confusion, don't pray for an easier life. Pray instead to be a stronger man and woman of God. Now, if you're like me, this whole section is uncomfortable. This call to follow Jesus is uncomfortable. We want to keep living how we're living, right? We want to have a plan. We want insurance. 
all the insurances we can get. We want to pack our bag when we travel, like multiple bags for some of you and your animals, whatever, to have a place to stay when we get there. We want to stay at peace with others, even if it means having tolerance or giving tolerance. We definitely don't want to offend the people we love on our family members. But the call to follow Jesus will cost us. Okay, go ahead and put your Bible away. We're going to close here. So, when uh, I graduated from high school, um, I was like a super Christian. I loved being a Christian. Like, it was great. All the Bible studies, midweek Bible study, lunch Bible studies, Bible studies at the church, you know, reading Max Lucado books and listening to Christian music and what would Jesus do bracelet, right? Being a Christian was fun. Oh, not to mention drinking way too much caffeine. Super cool. I loved it. I loved being a Christian, but in my heart, there was something that was divided. My desires were divided. I wasn't fully committed to following the ways of Jesus. There were things I wanted. Um, Some of those things were like, one, I wanted to move to warmer weather. Second thing, I did not want to go to college. I was done learning at age 18, right? And then the third thing, I wanted to be married so that I could be married, okay? God had other plans. He somehow got me to sign up for this thing called Youth with a Mission, um, what we called YWAM, and I went to a thing called Discipleship Training School, what we called DTS. And it wasn't super noble because the school was actually in Hawaii, go figure, right? Lord, send me Hawaii, okay. And I was with... 30 or 50 different people from different walks of life did not share the same worldview as me. Almost got kicked out the first week I was there. But by the grace of God, I was able to stay and began learning from just masters in their realm. We had a new teacher every week schooling us. The next part, the next three months of this was, was going on mission. We went to Thailand, of all places. And I'll never forget, we were staying with this, this um, pastor and his, like, at his church community compound thing. And uh, for one, I got sick. The first three weeks, I was like hanging out next to the bathroom because it was one of those kind of sicknesses, you know? <laughs> you don't want to get too far away if you don't make it in time, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't super easy. Um, but we were going around uh, to schools and we literally show up to these Thai schools and, and present the gospel, like, right after they were done doing their morning prayer in front of, like, a huge, like, Buddha idol statue. I mean, this was, like, spiritual warfare stuff right in front of our eyes. It was gnarly. But I'll never forget this pastor and his wife. They loved us so well. They would do, like, all-night prayer meetings. We couldn't even hang with their devoutness. It was so amazing. I remember the pastor sitting across from us telling his testimony. Oh, yeah, you know, grew up this way, da-da-da. And then I died, and then God raised me from the dead, and da-da-da. Wait, excuse me? What? You, uh, back up. What did you just say? Oh, yeah, I died. I was dead for six hours. The church came and prayed for me, and then I rose from the dead. Okay. What do you do with that information? <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. When I came back from Youth with the Mission, when I came back from Thailand and Hawaii, back home, um, I was completely changed. Uh, the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of my life. And my parents saw it, my family saw it. They're like, wow, your whole demeanor, your whole personality has changed. You've, you've committed your ways to discipleship, to following Jesus. 
Now, that was just as an 18-, 19-year-old. The story of, of me and discipleship continues, um, but it ended up being surrendering things that I wanted. You know those three things, the cold weather, college, and getting married? Turns out I would go to Portland, move to Portland, uh, started at Portland State University, going to college, and three, was uh, devoted myself to singleness for five years. Yeah. I was like, bachelor through the rapture, you know? <laughs> exact opposite of what I wanted to do coming out of high school. Now I'm a disciple and I'm doing what Jesus wanted me to do. And again, I wish I had time to tell you what that looks like today with my wife and, and recently some of the things that Jesus has called us to do, but it's that same thing. It's not what we want for our life. He calls us sometimes to pack our bags again to sell the house to give up the dream that you've had for your business or to buy that home out in John Day, whatever it is, will you follow the call of Jesus? Stuart and Alicia, if you guys want to come back up. Now, a lot of information there. This is going to hit, and I was asking the Holy Spirit what he wanted to say to you guys. I think some of you are here and you're like, I'm new to following Jesus. This is what I expected, discipleship. Let's do it. Come on. For you, I think the Holy Spirit wants to say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's going to be a long life devoted to surrendering things you want to Jesus. I think there's another group in here, and you've kind of been nodding your head the whole time I've been teaching, where you're like, yeah, that's just like my life. I could get up there and share my testimony too. It it would sound exactly the same. Um, To you, I would just say, finish well. I think the spirit would say, finish well, continue to do a good work that you can be like a Luis Palau at 80. When you die, people are just celebrating the life that you lived. And then lastly, there's a person who's not made a decision yet to follow Jesus as a disciple. Either content being a Christian or just spiritual or just doing the church thing once a week. I'll repeat the words of Jesus to you. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Or in the words of MLK, you've not truly lived until you've found something to die for. Even if you make it to 80, 90 years old, you were dead at, into your age, 36, 56, 62, whatever it is. Unless you found something to die for, you have not truly lived. So to end, it was St. Patrick's Day this last Wednesday. Did anybody celebrate that? Yes? My, my clan, the Hughes clan, we go all out, right? Corned beef, cabbage, potatoes. My mom even, like, cut cucumbers into uh, four-leaf clovers. Not even sure how she did that. It was, like, super extra. Um, but, yeah, St. Patrick was a fourth-century Englishman, met Christ while slave in Ireland, was freed miraculously, became a Catholic priest, returned to Ireland where he was enslaved, and was credited with leading the entire country to Christ. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. Here's a collection of quotes from him. I don't know if we have it on the screen. I'll just read it to you as we end. St. Patrick said, daily I expect to be murdered. I want you guys to stand too. Daily I expect to be murdered or betrayed or reduced to slavery. The occasion rises, but I fear nothing because the promises of heaven. 
Let anyone laugh and taunt me if they so wish. I am not keeping silent, nor am I hiding the signs and wonders that were shown to me by the Lord many years before they happened, who knew everything even before the beginning of time. And I pray to God to give me perseverance and to deign that I be a faithful witness to him to the end of my life for God. So Lord, we hear the call. We are invited to be your disciples. And I pray we take that seriously, even as we're led in songs now, as we come to the tables here after this first song. Lord, we allow you to work. Work in our hearts, work in our minds. We pray this in his name. Amen.